In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea. Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your eyes on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. So today, this is, uh, uh, we're looking at the readings from Jeremiah. So, Vicar, what can you tell us about, about the background for this reading from Jeremiah? Jeremiah is, for one, a very complex book, that is for sure. Um, it's actually the longest book that we have in the Bible when it comes to the number of words, um, but it's also one of the most complex books. Um, historically, um, as far as the literature and the structure and the theology behind Jeremiah all contribute into making it a, a rather challenging book for readers, for Christians to read. For one, uh, the, the author comes from Jeremiah, which is where we get the name of the book, but it was written at a time um, when we, we saw Judah um, collapsing underneath the Babylon, uh, Babylonian Empire. And so uh, the Israelites are sent off into exile. And there's a lot going on politically Assyria at this time is being um, overrun and defeated by Babylon. Um, so we have a turning over of power, but then Judah itself um, becomes free for a little while underneath the Assyrian rule or free from the Assyrian rule. And then finally in 587 BC, we have Jerusalem and the temple being destroyed. And then the beginning of the, the Babylonian captivity. And the beginning of right. the Babylonian captivity, exactly. Um, so there's a lot going on all at this, this time period in which um, Jeremiah is ministering. And his audience, when he writes this book, is directed to the people of Judah, but also a little bit to the nations around Judah. And he has a hard task ahead of him. He's told to provide some very hard words uh, that, would, that the Israelites did not want to hear. He confronted their sin and he told them that um, judgment would be coming. And uh, he was told by God that they would not listen. And yet he was supposed to proclaim these words anyways. Sounds like a familiar story. That's the, the fate of a lot of prophets, unfortunately. It is. It is. And we see a lot of parallels with um, other prophets, um, which we'll get into later on in our conversation, uh, one being Ezekiel. Mm -hmm. um, Ezekiel is, um, both Ezekiel and Jeremiah, they describe having this word, receiving God's word, and they can't help let it out. They can't contain it within themselves. And, and both of them describe it as being almost um, unpalatable to begin with, but, um, it, and especially in the text that we're going to look at today, 
it becomes something that's very pleasing, something that um, Jeremiah himself really likes. And Ezekiel's, um, I think we, we all have this idea, or we've all heard it before, where Ezekiel likens the word of God to being sweet as honey. Mm -hmm. Well, and that appears in the Psalms, too. There's multiple uh, uh, times where that, that exact phrase appears in the Psalms. Yes, yes. So it's throughout Scripture. And um, here, for a prophet, they're, they're giving God's word, and they can't help but um, share that word, speak that word, whatever it may be. In this case, it's, it's judgment to the people around and yet Jeremiah knows that the words that he proclaims are going to bring him a lot of heartache. He's going to be distanced from the community that is around him. He's going to even feel abandonment from, from God. Um, and there's a lot, of, a lot of repercussions for what he does. Um, so the life of a prophet is not easy, and yet the, the joy that he has is the word itself, and we'll see that a little bit in our reading today. A little bit more about the, the history and the background of, of Jeremiah. Um, the literary structure is not very easy to follow along with, that's for sure. It somewhat resembles the, the disastrous times that he is speaking in. Um, for example, we have, we have multiple endings in the book, or what appears to be multiple endings in verse 45, and again in 51, and then again in chapter 52. It's composed of different genres, so we have poems and we have prose, and there isn't a real chronological or a clear chronological order of all the events going on in the book. That does make it confusing. It's like, it's like a movie where there's flashbacks to multiple time periods. Sometimes it's a challenge to keep track of, of where you are. That's exactly and, right. Right, because it, it, it doesn't read like a history like some of, the other, some of the other books of the Bible where it's a clear chronological line. Um, although the books of the Bible themselves aren't arranged chronologically, but within, within other books, it's a little bit more of a clear timeline than, than Jeremiah. That's exactly right. And, and as a reader, when you read Jeremiah, it, you begin to feel a little lost, like you're part of all of that disaster that's going around Jeremiah. Um, you may be scratching your head a little bit, um, and so it isn't, it, it certainly isn't an easy book to read. Um, and, and it can be challenging also for us today to read it because I think we have a lot of distance between ourselves and, and what Jeremiah is encountering. Uh, for example, um, we live in a peaceful nation right now, which is, you know, we, we praise and thank God for that. And yet Jeremiah, we see, uh, during his time, we see all of this, um, these di disruptions with um, the Babylonians, uh, the Assyrians, the Egyptians. There's a lot of political movement going on that we, we don't quite grasp and understand. 
But then there's also, we see, we see God being very active in the judgment that he is bringing to Judah. And he's very clear that he is bringing this judgment on Judah because of their sin. And I think today we, we have a hard time understanding or seeing that. We, don't, we, we may see um, nations rise and fall, but we can't quite pinpoint and say, this nation fell because they sinned. They did X, Y, and Z wrong. Sometimes we're doing things that are right and evil befalls us. Well, and it may be easy for us to point to something like that and say, oh, well, that's why, that's why they, they've fallen on hard times is because they've sinned. To us, that may seem obvious. Uh, but, but in Jeremiah's case, we're talking about a revelation that God, God pointed this out. It's not, yes. it's not his perception. It's God said they will, they will be brought low because they have sinned. Right. That's a good point because... Um... There, there are a lot of, when we see a nation fall, we can, we can start to, we can make assumptions or, or guess that, you know, there, there can be a cause from this. God is bringing this nation down because of sin. And certainly we all live in a sinful world, but we can't make that logical conclusion and say for certain that this is why something happened. And here, this in, in Jeremiah, at the, um, the book of Jeremiah were revealed that this is God's will. Uh, the immediate structure in which we're, we're looking at, that is, um, we're going to be taking a look at um, chapter 15. This falls in um, a, a section of Jeremiah's laments, and it is roughly between chapter 11 and chapter 20, where we see um, three different laments, one right at the start, one in the middle, and one at the end. This one is at, in the middle, so it's the second lament of this structure. And another word that comes up or that you may see is uh, that it's part of Jeremiah's confessions. Mm -hmm. And so here we have in um, the, the reading both Jeremiah's lament and then God's response to, to Jeremiah. Would you mind reading um, verse... Let's just begin with verse uh, 15. O oh Lord, you know, remember me and visit me, and take vengeance for me on my persecutors. In your forbearance, take me not away. Know that for your sake I bear reproach. The word to remember when we, when we hear or Jeremiah calls to the Lord, asking him to remember me and visit me, that um, the Hebrew for that is a car, and it means not just a, a recollection as we think of to remember. Oftentimes we, we say, remember what you learned in XYZ, and in our minds we think up of something. Well, this is, isn't just a typical remembering as in recollection, but it's capturing the past um, in a specific way to lead to an action in the present. So right here, when, when Jeremiah says, remember, when he uses that zakar word, he's asking that the Lord see him where he's at and act out deliverance and salvation for him. And then we have, um, would you mind reading verse 16? Your words were found, and I ate them. 
and your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I am called by your name, O Lord, God of hosts. This passage, um, you kind of look for this passage in each of the chapters. Um, here we're told that the words um, of God were, were found and here Jeremiah eats them. And they appear in different ways in each of these chapters, but God's word is, uh, appears throughout. And it's a reoccurring theme, that of the prophet, where the prophet either speaks the words of God, receives the words of God. Um, and here, it's, it's kind of, it marks a shift in the, the phrase and the words of, of um, I guess, the use of the words of God. Because this is the first time that we're told that it's actually a joy and a desire or a delight. And it appears um, elsewhere in the book of Jeremiah, actually four other times, and it's always paired with groom and bridegroom um, language, or bride and bridegroom language. So there's a lot of joy that this word is supposed to bring. Before um, I mentioned there was a, a, a striking parallel with Ezekiel, who describes the word as being sweet as honey. And to begin with, the word can be a little bit bitter, so to say, or it's a little bit hard to, it's unpalatable. It's hard to um, process or, or to speak out. We see this in the way that Jeremiah is persecuted for the word. And yet, um, in chapter 15 and moving forward, this word becomes a delight to him. We also see that um, he is um, called by, in, in the fourth line there, for I am called by your name. Jeremiah is speaking that. And for me, that when he says God's name, um, it reminds or brings to my mind Deuteronomy 12.5, where God closely associates his name with his presence. There's this, um, so whenever we're at the beginning of the service, when we make our name, when we make the beginning in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, we remember that God is present with us. And it's just a beautiful promise that wherever his name is, that's where he promises to dwell. Here also, when Jeremiah says, for I am called by your name, we see this presence of the Lord being there. And Jeremiah is being claimed as the Lord's. As we go through this, it, it, it's written in a very poetic way. And as you, as you noted before, the style, the writing style differs from being kind of a chronology. But yet during these laments, it reads like a, almost like a psalm of lament. And, and the ideas just seem to be um, they free-flowing. They're just all over, the, all over the map. In one minute, he's talking about being um, vengeance for my persecutors. And then he's talking about the word of the Lord and then, and then calling on the name of the Lord, uh, invoking his presence. It's a very free-flowing uh, uh, expression of ideas in this lament. It is. It is. And we talked a little bit about how 
the structure can be hard to follow. And I think mm -hmm. we can get a little bit of a sense of that just in the lament itself. Um, there is, it, speaking of the words, uh, that your words were found when you brought that up, that actually is um, a, a, a reference or could be a, a poetic reference to Hilkiah finding the scrolls of um, the Torah um, in, in the temple. And that was, that's actually recorded for us in 2 Kings chapter 22. And so finding, this, finding God's word, some think that that took place or that he's referring to that specific time, which is actually during the time that, that he lived. And that would be in um, 621 or so BC. So it's interesting how, the, how he really does weave in this, this poetry into the history that's going on at that time, as well as all of these different references, it's kind of like this collage all coming together in the end. Yeah, collage is, I think that's a great word for it. Would you mind reading uh, verses 17 and 18? I did not sit in the company of revelers, nor did I rejoice. I sat alone because your hand was upon me, for you had filled me with indignation. Why is my pain unceasing? my wound incurable, refusing to be healed. Will you be to me like a deceitful brook, like waters that fail? In these two verses, we see a lot of the repercussions of Jeremiah being a prophet. In verse 16, we are told that he received the word, he mm -hmm. ate the word, and now we see that sort of this outflow, the, these consequences, one being that he is sort of a social outcast during his time. We're told that he did not sit in the company of revelers, so he sat alone. So there's this distancing. But then on top of that, there's also this um, seeming abandonment from God. He feels like he's been abandoned. And he expresses this when he talks about that deceitful brook. In fact, that's been, that's a, pretty close reference to earlier on in the book when uh, Jeremiah compares God or describes God as being the fountain of living water. And now he's asking, are you a, a deceitful brook? Are you not going to actually pour out your water? And what he's getting at is this question of, you know, he's, he's already been abandoned by all of those who are around him. Is he now being abandoned by God. Finally, uh, the, the next verses we, we get into the Lord's response. So would you mind reading verse 19? Therefore, thus says the Lord, if you return, I will restore you and you shall stand before me. If you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. Here God is really kind of laying it down on, on Jeremiah. It's kind of like Job, where you know, Job um, kept looking for the Lord to respond, and then he crosses his, his lines, goes a little bit too far, and then God has to put him back in his place. And I think something similar is happening here in Jeremiah. Um, the Lord is really calling Jeremiah to repentance, whereas all along Jeremiah had been calling Israel to repentance. And so here, finally, at last, Jeremiah has also stepped 
or crossed over his bounds. God is telling Jeremiah that he will restore him um, if he does indeed repent. And so there's some parallels in these verses. If you return, I will restore you and you shall stand before me. So that closely reflects the next two lines, which is, if you utter what is precious and not what is worthless, you shall be as my mouth. So these two are, are parallels. It's a literary device that you see oftentimes in, in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language. Well, and it actually translates well into our language that you can see that parallel there. That's not always true. The, the, some of those linguistic parallels don't always come through in the, in the translation, but here, here, here it's pretty clear. Yes, yeah. And, and when we hear like, you shall be as my mouth, really that's getting back to his, his prophetic role his vocation as a prophet, um, being the mouth would be a, a mouthpiece of God, to speak God's word to the Israelites. And really just demonstrating that, that I'm putting my mantle upon you as a, as a prophet. This, this is your calling. Right, it really comes from, from God. Mm -hmm. It isn't something that we ourselves earn or um, in Jeremiah, he would not have earned his role as prophet. It's something that God has given him. We also see the last two verses, they, or the last two lines in that verse. They shall turn to you, but you shall not turn to them. It's another way of talking about this restoration. Um, Jeremiah will be speaking the words to the people because he's speaking God's words, but he is not to listen to the words of the people because that isn't God's words. They're pushing up and against Jeremiah. Mm -hmm. Kind of offering this as, a, as a, an encouragement to Jeremiah that this won't, will not be an easy task and you need to um, hold firm. That's exactly it. Yeah, it certainly is not an easy task. And we see that more with a picture of a, a bronze wall as if there's this battle going on between him and the Israelites with whom he's speaking. Would you mind reading verses 20 and 21? And I will make you to this people a fortified wall of bronze. They will fight against you, but they shall not prevail over you. For I am with you to save you and deliver you, declares the Lord. I will deliver you out of the hand of the wicked and redeem you from the grasp of the ruthless. That fortified wall of bronze, which I mentioned earlier, um, that's actually the original promise that God made to Jeremiah in chapter one. He told him that he would be that, um, that bronze wall and that he would be the one who is protecting Jeremiah in the midst of it all. And so he promises, if you repent, you will again be that bronze wall. He also uses the words of deliverance, which is, um, those are really big words, especially in the book of Exodus, because that's, those are the words that God uses to deliver when he delivered Israel from out of Egypt. And so there's this 
there's this close association with um, this continual work of God to deliver and to protect his people. And it also carries, it's not just a earthly deliverance, but there's also a spiritual component to it. I think you see this also in a lot of the, the Psalms and elsewhere, where there's this deliverance from Hades, from hell, and this protection and preservation of one's life. Well, and, and, and just deliverance from your, from your persecutors too. That's a, that's a theme that's very common in the Psalms. And it's, and it's here in this lament too, which, which reads, again, the whole thing reads a lot like a Psalm, other than I think the ideas are a little bit more, a little bit more scattered. And it's interesting that you said he's referencing something from way back at the beginning of the book, um, which reinforces that idea that, that, Thought-wise, he's all over the map, uh, and and you really have to you'd have to take some good notes to be able to follow. I think his argument, if you're just reading it, beginning to end. That's right, and there's actually a number of phrases. Jeremiah is known for its numerous phrases that repeat time and time again throughout his work. So he continues to reinforce these these phrases, and yet it it continues to be a very complex book. It's well-structured, and it's worth studying in depth, but also very complex. It probably would take multiple readings for you to make, make all those connections. So fortunately for us, we have uh, the advantage of, of commentaries that others have studied Jeremiah more carefully and can, can kind of um, give us those clues of things to look for. That's, it. That's exactly it. For this week, could you... Could you maybe uh, connect for us what, uh, what you see as the connections between the Jeremiah reading that we've been talking about here and the other two readings, one from Romans and then the gospel reading for this Sunday? And, and that's going to be your sermon theme for this Sunday, correct? The gospel reading? Yes, that is correct. I'll okay. be focusing on, on the gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 16. We do see a little bit of a connection in both of them, and I'm okay. sure... Now, scripture is so rich that we can really dig into each of these in a lot of detail and find more than um, just some of the things that I've noted. But uh, Romans 12, which is the, uh, the epistle reading, we are reminded that um, vengeance is not our doing, but it is uh, the Lord's doing. And here in Jeremiah, I think this, we see this quite a bit in that um, Jeremiah and his role as a prophet was to proclaim the upcoming judgment, but he himself was not to be the one to deliver that judgment. But he was the one to deliver the warning about it that um, they needed to repent. That's right, that's right. He had a very active role in, in warning um, Israel and Judah, but he himself did not actually um, bring that judgment. So also, judgment is reserved, we're told, in, in uh, Romans 12 for the Lord. And yet, Paul and all of, the, all of the, the writers of Scripture, they make very clear that, and they provide that warning, just like Jeremiah, that judgment is coming. Mm -hmm. Matthew 16 is, I noted a few, a few parallels. The passage, I, I don't know if you were uh, attentive to it, but 
Um, Jeremiah actually came up this past Sunday. It, it, was, it was something that I had to go back and look at again because it, it was something, it wasn't, the, it wasn't the main focus of the reading. I was focused on Peter being the rock and Jesus declaring that, and I had forgotten what he had said before that, that uh, he was compared to, uh, uh, he was, well, the, the, was the, the question was, who do you say that I am? That's right, that's right. And usually, Jeremiah is definitely one of the less known figures there. When the disciples respond to who do others say that I am, they say that some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Mm -hmm. and, and for us as listeners, we don't quite think of Jeremiah right off the bat, or at least I didn't yeah. think of Jeremiah right off the bat. He's one of the, the lesser known figures of the Old Testament, and yet here he appears. And, um, but I think you can see why that parallel would be made or why one may mistake Jesus for being Jeremiah. In both, I mean, Jeremiah is, he has all this conflict between himself and the community around him. He even has some conflict with the king where the king actually takes his, his scrolls and destroys them and then has him rewrite the scrolls. And so there's this conflict between Jeremiah and the king. And so also um, we see this conflict that Jesus has with the people who are around him as well as the king, King Herod. Right, it's the whole, um, it was prophesied that, that Jesus would be in conflict with the civic authorities. And, and, and it's, as it unfolded, it's a very parallel situation. It is. Yeah. I think one other thing to, another thing to glean from this um, passage in Matthew 16 and its parallel in Jeremiah is the, the, the parallels between Jeremiah and Peter. Peter, this coming Sunday, we'll, we'll talk about how he was really, he really had to be put in his place by Jesus. He overstepped his bounds by trying to prevent Jesus from traveling to Jerusalem and dying there, which is the whole message of the cross. Mm -hmm. He tried to keep Jesus from doing that, and then Jesus had to scold him and call him, he said, get behind me, Satan. Um, harsh. Yeah, very harsh. And like Jeremiah, Jeremiah also, in, in the passage that we just read, he really had to be put in his place, didn't he? He, he overstepped his bounds. And so here there's, there's these two church representatives overstepping their bounds and being put in their place by God. I think the, what, maybe one last um, thing that I'll note um, is the uh, connection or the close parallels between Jerusalem as well as uh, Jerusalem in both Jeremiah and the Gospel of Matthew. In the passage that we're taking a look at this coming Sunday and Monday, Jesus foretells his death by saying that he is going to go to Jerusalem. And here in the book of uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah is talking about the coming judgment and destruction of Jerusalem. So in both cases, Jerusalem is both the city of wickedness as well as this city which has judgment coming to it. Um, in Jeremiah's time, Jerusalem refused to repent. In Jesus' time, Jerusalem was actually the location where 
Jesus himself was put to death, and so they didn't recognize their Savior. Um, so also in Jeremiah's time, Jerusalem was destroyed underneath uh, the Babylons, and so they were brought into captivity. So also in Jesus's time, the Romans would come and destroy Jerusalem only a few years later in 70, 72 AD. And, and Jerusalem still has that, that signature of being a, it's, it's the point of arrival, but also the point of greatest conflict. I mean, because you have this, you have this place that's claimed by three major world religions and they, and they all want it uh, as if it's the, 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 um, you know, the apex, the, 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 the highest point, the, um, the, you know, the connection almost between earth and heaven. But, but yet it's that, it's that same place as that point of all that conflict. Right. And actually in, in the gospel of Matthew, I bring this up a little bit in the sermon, or we'll bring this up a little bit in the sermon, but the city of Jerusalem was viewed as the city of the great king. Mm -hmm. And we're told that in Matthew chapter 5. And so there's a lot of, there's a, a good reason why Jerusalem was looked so highly of. The great king was to be of Jerusalem. Now, Jesus went to Jerusalem and he had a triumphal entry, and, but it was certainly not the type of king that any of us would have recognized. We, in our minds, think mostly of an earthly king, and I think that's what most nations and, and religions, when they fight over Jerusalem, are thinking of in their mind as well. So for this, this coming Sunday, because it's mentioned in the gospel reading, the phrase, take up your cross and follow me, the hymn that I've selected, and, and this is a first for all the podcasts that we've done, is I've actually selected one that is not in the Lutheran service book, the hymnal that's in our, our pews. If you happen to have worshiped at a church that had LW, Lutheran worship, which came out in 1982, it was contained in that hymnal. It was not, however, in the Lutheran hymnal from 1941. So it's a, it's a hymn that has kind of a, an ambivalent history with, with our synod. I mean, is it is it part of the the body of hymns that we regularly use, or is it not? And I can see the reasons why maybe in this latest hymnal they left it behind. One of them being is that from the original, this, this hymn has been uh, altered a lot. And so you ask yourself, if you have to do that much changing with a hymn, maybe it's something that's better that just gets, gets left behind. And that happens with every hymnal, that there's new hymns that come along and you discover hymns from other sources perhaps, and you have to make that difficult decision, what are we gonna keep? What are we going to leave behind? And this was one of them that they decided to leave behind from Lutheran worship. And uh, the reason I selected it again for this Sunday is just because it, it repeats that phrase, take up your cross, and that does figure rather prominently in the gospel reading for this Sunday. It's a hymn that was written by Charles uh, Everest in 1833, and he was an Episcopalian clergyman, and uh, he wrote this hymn only at the age of 19, so kind of one of his younger, younger efforts. He's not known for much else in terms of, of writing hymns, but this is kind of his 
his one and only claim to fame. Now, the melody that it's paired to is also not the melody that it was, this text was paired to in Lutheran worship. And that is because I, I found that melody to be one that's, that's less familiar to, to people, and certainly to our congregation. So again, this may be another reason why this hymn was left behind. Nobody knows that melody. It's never developed a real, uh, a, a definite attachment, the, the text and tune together are a real clear attachment, unlike something like a mighty fortress where it's, you, you know, you know the tune, you know the text, those two go together. And so if, if it doesn't call to mind, if the, if the text doesn't call to mind a certain tune, uh, maybe that's the reason it got left behind because it's just never gained in any familiarity for that reason. So what I elected to do, because I have a music software uh, in my office that I can, I can do this with, I can take a familiar tune and I can drop the text in and we have something that's very familiar. So the tune I, I chose was, in, in German it's known as Erhalt uns Herr, which means preserve us, Lord. We probably know it more as, Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. That's the, that's the text that's most often paired with it. And it's a melody that has its origins in uh, an old plain chant called Veni Redemptor Gentium. And that's a great example of how Luther took the familiar things or the things that were part of the tradition of the church and he just added a new layer to it. He didn't, he didn't think that because we were, we were looking, taking a close look at the theology of the church, that we need to dump everything else out, uh, literally throw the baby out with the bathwater. There was a lot of things that we could keep, and one was this ancient plain chant. It's believed that Luther wrote this tune. No one knows for sure. It could have been his friend Johann Walter who helped him with a lot of his musical projects. It could have been either one of them. Generally, it's accredited to Luther. Um, and so, and I, you'll notice that in our hymnal that it is ascribed to Luther. So I'm curious, out of all the tunes that you could have paired up with this, why mm -hmm. this one in particular? I felt that that the the message of the text, in a way, was kind of rem reminiscent of "Lord, keep us steadfast in Your Word" and and some of the sentiments of it. Now, when you're when you're choosing a tune to pair it with, you have a lot of choices. And I don't know if you've ever explored the back of the hymnal and the, the metrical index in the back of the hymnal. Is, is that something you've ever, you've ever really dug around in or kind of looked at? I have touched it just okay. a little bit, mostly for class, I will admit, okay. as an assignment. Okay, okay. And so you're aware that, that every text has a metrical structure to it. It does. Right. And this, this text has a met metrical structure of eight, 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 eight. Well, what does that mean? It means there's four lines of eight syllables. So if we take the first line, take up your cross, the Savior said. So there's eight right there. And it goes on that way. This is such a common poetic meter for hymns, eight, 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 
that it's been it has its own designation, and the, and the de designation is long meter. This is called long meter. And there are many uh, hymn tunes in our hymnal that have that match up with long meter that would have been a choice, a good choice for this. I think there's at least 20 different tunes that, that, you, that would have been a good choice. Of those, I felt that this was perhaps the best, one of the best matches. And so that's why I paired it with this tune. That's pretty remarkable. So you, you start off with the uh, restrictions of the text itself with that meter, but in this case, um, that restriction wasn't too restrictive. It actually provided a number of tunes that you could work with seeing that it's so common. Yes, so there, there, were, there were quite a few hymns to choose from. I think this is one of the better pairings. I've noticed I'm, I'm not alone in thinking that, that in some other hymnals, not our hymnals, but in some other denominational hymnals that actually make use of this text, they also chose this tune. So um, I'm not alone in thinking that it's a good pairing. So um, I'm going to suggest that, uh, well, it's, it's a short enough hymn, we can sing the entire hymn. Um, so why don't, why don't we go ahead and do that? Um, take up your cross, the Savior said. Again, this is, uh, the text comes from Lutheran worship, but the tune is, is the familiar one to, Lord, keep us steadfast in your word. Take up your cross, the Savior said, If you would my disciple be, Forsake the past and come this day, and humbly follow after me. Take up your cross, let not its weight pervade your soul with vain alarm. His strength shall bear your spirit up, sustain your heart and nerve your arm. Take up your cross, nor heed the shame, nor let your foolish heart rebel, for you, the Lord, and to the cross to save your soul from death and hell. Take up your cross and follow Christ, nor think till death to lay it down. For only those who bear the cross may hope to wear a golden crown. If I could just mention two things about the text before we go on with the uh, responsive reading. As many texts do, there's kind of a reference to looking forward to the second coming there in the last stanza. In this one, it's a little, little more um, oh, uh, oblique a reference that uh, those who bear the cross may hope to wear a golden crown, kind of looking forward to the reward of heaven. It's a lot more explicit in a lot of other hymns talking about this looking forward to heaven. 
And I mentioned before uh, that this text has been altered a lot as it's appeared in different hymnals. And we have only four stanzas here. There are some other ones that were left out. And my suspicion is the reasons, reason they were left out was because there's that temptation to think that we are told to take up your cross and we can somehow earn our salvation, that if we just do these certain things, that, that we can earn our way into heaven. And so at the risk of not wanting to think in that direction, they just decided it was better to leave, leave that stanza out, uh, which is always a danger in, in, in some things. Is you, have to, you have to look at well, what is this exactly saying? Um, or could it be easily misunderstood? And maybe that was a reason where, that they decided, well, this hymn is maybe a little bit, uh, it's, it's too easily misunderstood. Maybe not the best choice. We'll leave this one behind. Well, when we saying that, I couldn't help but imagine what it looked like for someone to be almost like dragging this big rugged cross throughout different stages of their life, with the uh, first verse being um, this call to be a disciple and to follow after. And the, um, then in the middle two verses, you have the, the weight of the cross and the shame, so you're, these different challenges that come carrying that cross. And then finally, there's this preparation for death. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like this stage, multi-stage journey carrying that cross throughout. And each time you have this repetition, take up your cross, take up your cross. Right. It's, it's, yeah, you make a really, really good point there. That it's like a, a representation of the Christian journey through life. And that phrase comes right, take up your cross, comes right out of this Sunday's gospel. So it, it's, it's, rooted, it's rooted in our experience and our the way we look at the, the theology of the cross, um, but maybe maybe not that useful throughout too much of the church here, which is one of the reasons that, that this hymn got left behind. But we will sing it this Sunday. So we continue with the, with the litany that's from our, our daily prayer. O Lord, have mercy upon us. O Christ, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Our, Our Father, Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Blessed Lord, you have caused all Holy Scripture to be written for our learning. Grant that we may so hear them, read, mark, learn, and take them to heart, that by the patience and comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Bible study podcast. It is our hope that it has helped you grow in faith and appreciation of our Lutheran worship traditions. Speaking of worship, remember that from Memorial Day through Labor Day, our Sunday services are at 8 and 9.30 a.m. 
and our Monday service remains at 6.30 p.m. God's peace be with you.